Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, Amplify producer at Nottingham Playhouse. Now we've entered our third national lockdown, I'm once again holed up in my makeshift bedroom studio, having a series of interesting conversations with exciting theatre folk. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Tom. Thank you for joining us today on the Nottingham Playhouse Amplified podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. The sun is shining through the window. Um, what does uh, social distancing look like for you? What have you been up to? Well, um, I came down to Cornwall four weeks ago to live with my mum, actually. I'm based in Brighton normally um, and have a flat there, um, but my uh, childhood home is in Cornwall. And so I came back four weeks ago to live back with mum, kind of look after her, but also to be able to have a bit more um, outside space. We have a garden here <laughs> and I don't have a garden in Brighton. Um, so even just on a basic level uh, to live a little bit more frugally and um, to be able to legally enjoy some outside space once a day has been good. It's a really weird time and I, I'm sure everyone's saying the same thing and I think we're all kind of finding uh, our own ways to keep going with it. But um, it's been full of ups and downs for sure for me. Um, ups of feeling really inspired to try and connect with as many people as possible that I haven't connected with for a while and like these kind of major downs where I just want to bake tons of cookies eat them and not get out of bed but um (laughs) you know it's 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 yeah it's it's okay thank you I'm really grateful to be able to be with family and to have a garden (laughs) uh and as you mentioned of course under normal circumstances you live in brighton but you uh you work all over the country where are you from tom are you from cornwall yeah so i i grew up well basically next door to where i am now which is kind of weird um so yeah i grew up in cornwall um as a young boy and i left and moved to london when i was just turned 16 um and i spent uh, about five, six years training and living in London. Um, and I trained as a contemporary dancer at London Contemporary Dance School. And I've now lived, yeah, I've lived in Brighton for about eight years now. And um, where did your relationship with dance and with the theatre start? Are you, fr- are you from an artsy family? I am, <laughs> yes, to a certain extent I am. Both my parents are musicians. Um, right. So I, I was surrounded by music as I grew up. And um and kind of rebelled against that as soon as I could. I think both my parents desperately wanted me to be a musician as well. Um, and I said, not a chance, mate. Um, I love you dearly, but I am going to do something else. And that just ended up turning into, uh, I discovered, I think, you know what? I, I think it's because I watched Riverdance for the first time. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um and I, a mix of watching Riverdance and S Club 7 videos, I think, made me want to become a dancer. Um, and so, yeah, no, that I was lucky to be very much supported um, by my family. Um, but yeah, I grew growing up in Cornwall, it's kind of, uh, you'd think, yes, it is very rural, but there is kind of a great artistic community thriving down here. And there's uh, kind of a huge... Uh, 
community yeah it's great um and i think at the heart of that community is knee high theater um who many people will know um and i grew up watching their shows um so I, yeah i with a mix of wanting to be a dancer and also watching the brilliant work of the crazy people at knee high um yeah that's kind of what plunged me in and i ended up yes i started my a degree course at London Contemporary Dance School when I was 16 so I went I pushed really hard really early because I was just obsessed um just I still am but um yeah no it was Cornwall was full of great stuff for me as a young person so talk me through that first of all um uh who who was taking you to see those early knee-high shows and how old are you when you're getting involved in seeing that work Oh, well, I, there's a picture of, basically, my, it was my mum, for sure. Um, and my mum was very much loving uh, trying to expose me to as much, many different facets of um, music, art and theatre as possible, which is, I'm very lucky to have had. But there is a picture of me as a, I think about a 10-year-old, 9, 10-year-old. And we'd just been to see Carmen, which was a very early knee-high show. And I am in floods of tears because I'm so terrified because the actors came through the audience and like surprised everybody. Um, so I think there was, I had as a 10 year old seeing those first knee high used to make shows for village halls and um, outdoor spaces uh, kind of more than they do now. Um, and it was those early shows where we'd go to our local village hall and watch a version of uh, the three little pigs and it would be the most um, kind of, crazy and slightly deranged three little pigs you would have ever seen but it was those that influence is like a early teen I think um thanks to my mum that really kind of made me think oh god theatre can be really magical and when did you start to dance in sort of like an, an organised way? When did you start to learn how to do that? There was a lot of unorganised dance. I love that in an organised way. <laughs> um, yeah, there was a lot of unorganised dancing in the kitchen. I've seen you in a rehearsal room. It's majoritively unorganised dancing. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. Exposed. Um, <laughs> my mum said, uh, actually, as I think at about 11, 12, she went, look, if you want to be a dancer you're going to do it properly. And so she took me to a ballet class um, in the local, well, in the closest dance school that seemed she thought seemed good. And that was an hour away. Um, and that was with a dance teacher, a male dance teacher. Um, and I went in and I was the only boy and I cried all the way through and said I'd never go again. And she forced me to go back the next week. And the rest is history, really, actually, that um, Jason Thomas, who's this he now runs an empire of dance schools in Cornwall, um, just had the one at the time and, and really was a massively positive influence as a young man seeing um, an adult male teaching ballet. Um, kind of, it was a bit kind of Billy Elliot in the way that I, I felt like I was the only person that would ever want to do that. And I found this kind of mentor who just blew my mind to th and he, he'd done it all and he was really proud and exciting and, um, yeah, so that was the start of uh, my kind of organised dance. And that led me to um, finding lots of other styles and lots of other teachers and um, kind of predominantly contemporary dance, which is where my heart kind of jumped the most. And I fell in love with the idea of kind of uh, telling stories with my body and um, embodying uh, things that I might not have really thought about before as being something to do with dance you know um emotion and uh narrative yeah 
And are there any um, uh, practitioners or particular works that stand out in your mind from that time that, as you say, made your heart jump? Yeah, completely, actually. I, it was a mixture. I, I, at the time, there was a huge amount of touring dance, mid-scale touring dance work, which doesn't is, is really in the, um, has really kind of gotten smaller, the amount that's on offer at the moment. And I think that's probably, a, a, well, a lot of it is down to funding. But at the time, the, you know, this is 20 years ago, um, there was a huge amount of mid-scale touring dance that toured to the Hall of Cornwall. Um, and Australian Dance Theatre used to come virtually once a year. Australian Dance Theatre are a company based out of Adelaide. And they do the most, ins- their artist director creates the most kind of viscerally physical, almost acrobatic, angry, um, yeah, kind of fluorescent choreography. And I remember seeing, they did a piece called Bird Brain, which was an adaptation of Swan Lake, um, where they started playing, one of the actors, dancers came on and started playing the record of Swan Lake. And after about a minute, just started to scratch the record over and over again. And it led into this kind of punk rock version of Swan Lake. And that was the thing that really made me go, ah, it's not all just uh, two twos and point shoes. That was definitely a a kind of a turning point for me. And I wonder, because uh, I'm from from my point of view, I often, uh, not always, but often struggle when I go and see contemporary dance because I don't, uh, I don't know the rules, so therefore I don't know how to enjoy it, if that makes sense. So whereby I think when anyone goes to the theatre, you can sort of appreciate the rules, you sort of have them already, because it's not that far removed from the narrative art that we encounter in our homes every day. Yeah. But when you go, and, yeah. when you go and see, uh, especially contemporary dance, it does feel like that. So I wonder... Yeah, my question is, it's a very personal question. How can I feel comfortable going to watch contemporary dance? What should what should I be looking out for? I um no, I completely understand that. And I that's something that um I have struggled with as someone who trained as a contemporary dancer and going into my career as a choreographer, movement director, director, is that is that problem actually and, and finding it very hard myself to kind of discuss what for me feels I guess, relevant and uh, important uh, when talking about contemporary dance. Um, And there, well, for me, my starting point is always, if you're going to see a piece of contemporary dance, is always that there is no right and wrong and that there is is virtually no rules. It's exactly what you're saying, the opposite of what you might think if you know what you might expect in a piece of theatre. There are no rules. So that whatever you're... Uh, emotional reaction or uh, visceral kind of feeling is when you're watching something is the right thing to be feeling I and I know a lot of people end up getting um, kind of caught up in their heads of trying to make sense or trying to find a logic for things and I try and urge people if you're going to see a piece of contemporary dance to try and let logic and uh, reasoning go for a little while give yourself you give your headspace that place for imagination and see where you can go you know that's I th- that would be my recommendation saying that that doesn't work for me all the time as an audience member so as I have um matured and developed as an artist I know for myself that I respond most if I'm an audience member to work that has uh, a narrative heart or 
is driven by story. Um, and that's where, for me, I kind of feel like I sit in between this kind of, in this kind of crossroads between theatre and dance. Um, because I feel most excited about watching dance if I am, uh, if I am witnessing a story, if I can, even if I'm making some of that story up in my head, that I can be create following imagery, following character, and kind of investing in learning about um, a, a, a narrative or a storyline. So yeah, I completely understand that struggle with contemporary dance, um, and I would say try and always let yourself off the hook before you go into seeing something that you might not know much about. But um, it's, yeah, it's something that I struggle with even now, for sure. And that's excellent advice. I, I will endeavour to forgive my my own ignorance a little bit more the next time I encounter a piece of contemporary dance. Uh, so tell me, uh, going back a little bit, how does uh, a 16-year-old Tom Jackson Greaves from Cornwall end up starting a degree course two years before you're supposed to? <laughs> um, there's lots of rude words I could say to summarise my character at the time, which I won't say out on this uh, recording but uh, there was a lot of uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of suitable terminology um, I was very confident um, as a 16 year old and I kind of had no fear um, and I knew that I wanted to start training um, so I applied for everywhere that I could that I knew accepted people uh, students at 16 um, some foundation courses some diplomas things like that um, and I was lucky and I got into a few schools that were brilliant. Um, but I had seen some uh, third years from London Contemporary Dance School a year prior in a performance. And I had fallen in love with them as humans and as a kind of uh, slightly arrogant, uh, very confident 16 year old said, I want to go there. So um, I sent them a message and said, hello, please. Um, I am arrogant person from Cornwall please will you let me audition for your degree course even though I'm only 16 and they said no understandably so I sent them another one <laughs> and said um please could I um I'd I really feel like I your school and your training is what I really uh require and what I want to be doing and um so they invited me to an audition after much persistence and I did get in on but they said uh there is some kind of quite deep uh, requirements uh, to you being able to come and do in this course. Uh, one was that I had to get all A's or above at GCSE. And the other was that I had to write uh, some kind of coursework that could be uh, kind of degree level um, and prove that I had the literary skills <laughs> to do that as well. And luckily I did it. Um, and I think in lots of ways, it was the most bonkers thing I've ever done or ever will do. And maybe kind of bonkers on their behalf as well, <laughs> because I left after two years. I didn't actually complete the course, um, which I don't recommend either. Um, but yeah. Oh, no, I, it, why did that happen? Um, because uh, a certain choreographer called Matthew Bourne came and saw one of my performances in my second year and um, asked me to go and work with him. And um Again, at the time, I just did it. Um, and well, I, absolutely. Uh, um, that's um, that's brilliant. But tell me, tell me, what was it like being a sixteen-year-old and like going from Cornwall to London? Like, it's, it's just a completely different place, different pace of life, just everything. Yeah, well, what was that like? It was kind of amazing and kind of exactly what I wanted. I, th I, I think that was kind of where my headspace, small town boy 
wanting to get out of the rural living was very, you know, I, I know I had this kind of craving and drive to want to be experiencing city life and London life. That was so kind of ingrained in part of the decision of wanting to train. Um, but yeah, it was, I'd been going up to London every weekend for two years already <laughs> because um, I'd been training at Laban on their, on their youth programme. Um, so I used to get the train up every Friday after s- school and I'd miss the last half an hour of science and get the train to London and I'd get there at 10 and I'd get the tube to Essex and stay with my mum's friend, then go to Laban for all day on the Saturday and then get the train back on a Saturday night and get back at midnight. So I, I'd kind of experienced this kind of freedom and this London life and London danger that for a, on and off for a few years already. So it felt like it didn't feel that far away, weirdly. It's, it wasn't a very um, stereotypical kind of childhood, really. Um, I, I, I think just because uh, I grew up with a, with just living with my mum on the whole, and it was just the two of us, and we're both, she's fiercely independent, and I think kind of instilled that in me as well. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I had this kind of experience of London already, and so it just felt very natural um, to just plough in. I've been asking everyone when the conversation about training and formative experiences comes up. Obviously, at the moment, uh, everyone is trapped at home, which means like um, going to see work isn't possible, apart from the stuff that's available online. Uh, and also going out to train yourself right now, if, uh, if that's what you're inclined to do, isn't an option. But were there any particular resources or books that were important to you around that period that you might recommend for people to have a glance at while we're all stuck at home? Yes, probably. I th- the thing that I found probably for me most formative about my training years was actually the connections between myself and the other students as well as the, myself with my teachers. Um, it was For me, that would be the thing that I would kind of say ne- that we can still do now, actually, is is doing that research on other people in the field watching as you say where possible watching people's work but you know keeping in touch with making those connections can you challenge if you are if you're in if you have a bit of a peer group uh, whether that's a group of students or a group of friends can you challenge each other to make something in this time and work on it together I don't know for me that was so crucial in my training was learning from each other um, obviously as a dancer that's hugely physical and spending hours and hours of the day dancing which is is tricky at the moment um, but yeah, I I would say connections with other humans where possible, even if that is online at the moment, is going to be hugely important. But um, kind of literature wise, um, trying to think, I I very much fell in love with looking. We have dance history um, as a as a subject, and I fell in love with learning about um, choreographers from the past who had shaped the kind of world of contemporary dance as we knew it um and you know we have those resources online maybe it's a a good time to kind of look back at where we've come from and find out a little bit more about people who may have inspired the work we make now in your second year uh, of your degree course when you're a mere what now 18 years old uh matthew bourne says i want you to come be in my show um what was that like and what happened from there yeah, so um, he came to see this performance um, and he uh, got in contact with me after and said, would you come and do company class? 
which is nothing apart from just an experience of uh, being part of the company for an hour and then getting to see you. Um, and I did that, which led to coming to the audition for experience. And yeah, the, it was kind of a, a, a little bit of a tum kind of an avalanche of opportunities that rolled into the offer of the job. Um, and I think neither of us expected it, Matthew or myself, but it, it ended up in that place. And what that opportunity gave me was this kind of plunge into adulthood whereas as, as a student I think there was as as you say as 18 year old as well I was still very much kind of relishing the the freedom that I had but also living as a student so um yeah I plunged into a whole world that I really knew nothing about I hadn't worked I hadn't worked before at all and and I hadn't um experienced any performing that I'd experienced had been on a very small scale in, you know, small ensembles. And suddenly I was thrust into this company of 25 dancers. We're touring for 10 months, a two-month stint at Sadler's Wells. Um, it's huge budget shows. You know, the, the scale of just was kind of incomprehensible for me at the time. Um, and, yeah, it, I think the thing that it it gave me a crash course very quickly in stagecraft in uh etiquette in uh theater life um things that i wouldn't i didn't have a clue about how to how to tour how to book digs um how to cover how to uh how to act on stage i'd never really done it before and obviously matthew's work is so theatrical um and also how to be part of a team in that way. And it was the start of what I now kind of feel is a huge part of my kind of creative priorities, which is uh, ensemble and teamwork. So, yeah, it, it was it was a baptism of fire, like in this kind of crazy way where I just I had to learn everything in a short amount of time to make sure that I could be a professional alongside people who'd been working for 15, 20 years. It was crazy. <laughs> Uh, so how many how many shows did you do with the company? Um, I did four. Uh, so I did Cinderella, Nutcracker, uh, Early Adventures, and then I helped. I was part of the creation of Sleeping Beauty, which we did for sixteen months, kind of a long a long tour. Um, and and in a very kind of natural way, I just needed a break. Um, after that, it would it had been nearly four and a half years, I think, or maybe no three and a half years of touring, kind of constantly. Um, and it got, it took me all over the world. I was so lucky. It took me to Europe, Russia, um, Italy, um, Amsterdam, but also tours of America as well. Um, yeah, I it was a whirlwind that I look back on with huge fondness and kind of <laughs> disbelief that it actually happened in the way it did. But yeah, I did four years, nearly four years, full-time touring. And then from there definitely just needed to try something else try something new is that the point at which you make the transition from being a performer into being a movement director and choreographer yeah it started around then so this is like 2014 um and i started uh i was still working as a performer and doing freelance work um and i was doing small projects as a dancer but all the work that i was getting was still kind of narrative based um dance or the with kind of crossover with theater and and I, it was what I would I'd fallen in love with it working for Matthew that transition of those three and a half years taught me that I loved storytelling and I 
I was obsessed with character and I was obsessed with how Matthew carved narrative through imagery. Um, and that, that kind of period really formed my interest that I still hold now as a creative. Um, but yeah, I, I also in that kind of year after that, where I was starting to choreograph more, I had already been choreographing on and off throughout my time with Matthew as well, just my own work, little things on my, for myself. Um, I, stumbled across uh I got asked to go and work for Nehi as a performer um in the year after working with Matthew and that was through Etta Murphy who is the associate director of Matthew Bourne's company and she weirdly she said she'd been working with Nehi and she said do you want to come and be in this show and I said yeah I saw it and worked I actually worked on the show that I did with them as a 12 year old on box office (laughs) you know there was this kind of really weird full circle moment where I um I I went on tour with Nehi and in Tristan and Result which is one of Emma Rice's uh kind of most iconic shows actually um and Nehi was really the bridge for me between being a dancer and being a creative um because that experience for me basically made me feel like I had enough knowledge well not even knowledge I had enough of a gut feeling that I was in love with theatre <laughs> and I was in love with storytelling because I got to be on stage with some of the most brilliant clowns and storytellers in the country and um and so post that tour with Nehi I said right I want to sh- I want to combine this love of theatre and then my love of dance and start making and I just started to kind of reach out and that's where those first initial jobs as a choreographer and a movement director came about yeah um and so let's uh shift now and talk a little bit just about process and in particular I'd love to know uh how you go about uh working as a movement director or choreographer um you can pick a show to use an example if you like mm-hmm. use as an example if you like um when you're working when you're not the lead creative because i know you work uh, very successfully as a director in your own right but when you're when you're working with a director uh solely focused on um the movement or choreography of a piece of work talk us through that process i i f- feel like my process is ever changing as i think probably lots of people say um but um, my starting points when working on a project as a movement director or a choreographer is always, for the very beginning, is always getting to know the world of the piece and that infusing my kind of my first initial reaction. So uh, if I think of an example, so um, I last year I got to work on a production of King John at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which was a real joy of a process um it was with the director Eleanor Road who I've worked with quite a lot um but it started that process is kind of the epitome of what my normal process is normal my most kind of common process is which is get we always sit in her kitchen or we try and get together somewhere and we uh, usually in her kitchen we have Marmite on toast and a big cup of coffee and we um I will have read the piece already I will have got to know the kind of source material and we'll talk about the director's vision for the world of the piece. And so Shakespeare's great in that sense, because you have so much kind of license to go somewhere with creating a world. Um, but on any production, I love to kind of get as far inside the director's head of their kind of vision for a world of a piece as possible. And when I say a world, I talk, I'm talking about 
whether that is the period, the location, the energy, uh, the kind of positives and negatives of the world, um, you know, anything that can really infuse how I can envision uh, where this piece is set. So I'll I'll try and have those early conversations with the director and then I go away and I get stuck into kind of building what I kind of like to call like my encyclopedia or my kind of my um my kind of little hub of ideas for that project and that will be collating images uh action words I love to write as many themes from the piece as I can um and I'll kind of work out that's a very much a knee-high process is kind of working out the, the key three themes of a piece kind of so I have those in the forefront of my mind and whether there's research to be done on period or like a location, as I said, that's all those all that information about the world of a play or, or of a musical. Um, get that, get to know as much of that as possible. And I love to kind of find it, photos from a period that I really love and want to recreate, or relationships or dynamics of relationships in 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 a period. Tell me what you mean by action words. That sounds fascinating. Oh, so um, things like on a really basic level um like movement words anything that kind of pop uh, anything that has an energy that might pop out so with king john there was kind of anything that i felt because i like to use words in my choreography as to kind of fuel um the creation or fuel the the performance so you know even dy- dynamic words king john's a story about betrayal um and it's a story about trust and it's so I'd write things about eye contact you know or uh kind of darting looks anything that felt like uh or you know scuffles for money or uh seek stabs in the back or preening or anything that felt like it was kind of peacocking and trying to show off towards the opposition those kind of uh, that's in my basic language, my kind of action words, anything that can really feel like something that I could do in that world that I could then infuse within choreography. Um, Because I, yeah, I would then, so I'd kind of try and make basically on a really basic level, make a little kind of book or a little few page, even if it's just a few pages of ideas that I can always go back to. So I've got this kind of base understanding. Um, and from there, I start to usually I start to improvise um, because that's where I feel most comfortable. And um, I usually will do that on my own um, in a living room, uh, in a studio if I'm lucky. Um, and I'll film myself improvising, whether that's inspired by a specific scene or a specific piece of music. And I'll try and find like a movement language for a piece. Um, and then from there on, everything for me is led by the narrative and by storytelling. What is what is needed uh, from movement within a piece. And, you know, within a musical, that's a very different language to within a play in the sense that uh, within a musical, the music is there and it's dictated when you can respond to it. Whereas on a play, look at King John as an example again, you have the Shakespearean text, but you have the opportunity to put music and to put movement wherever you'd like to help deliver that narrative so we we found it really exciting to explore where are the peaks and troughs of king john might be physically where does where does there need to be something that will grab the audience's attention where can we tell a piece of storytelling without text where can we do it with movement instead um so yeah it's kind of a varied process depending on the project but for me i just i love to try and 
delve headfirst into a world of a piece and work out what it needs. Actually, I wonder if I if I can just ask you to enlarge on that uh, that last point there, because it occurs to me that um, we should take this back to first principles, because some people listening might not know what a movement director would be needed for when working on a uh, straightforward narrative play like King John, for example. So can you just talk us through, like, in the final production of King John, what bits of your work will we see that makes the world of the play more whole? I have many. I, I continue, as many of us do as movement directors, to discuss uh, the role of a movement director um, on a piece of straight theatre. Um, and I think it constantly varies. But uh, for me, it kind of encompasses two or three different elements. And one is... One is stylized movement and whether that is that could be a dance, it could be kind of a naturalistic dance, or it may be um exploring a battle with some with something slightly more abstract. It may be uh finding a way to tell a piece of storytelling without text. You know, think of I think of the um the storm in uh Twelfth Night. Um how could I tell the story of a storm and a ship breaking in half just with bodies on stage that's not necessarily dance it might be more physical theater so that kind of physical narrative storytelling um but it also bridges uh many other things including character work working with actors on how they might move as a character um how they might embody a certain part of uh, a certain emotion or a certain uh stake or a certain kind of uh level of uh, tension or pain as a character how they might access that but also that kind of as I said that overall energy of a piece so maybe how scenes flow or how transitions might move how the set might move um, anything that kind of can anything that looks at dynamics within a scene it's, it's a very broad role and it's quite hard to talk about in a sense that um, if you were to go and see King John, for example, there'd be elements of my work in King John that you could adamantly go and easily say, oh, that was Tom's work because there was a dance or there was a battle that was, it was a non-realistic battle, which very much felt like a piece of staging. But there was also a lot of work that I did with the actors on their characters and the dynamics within certain scenes, which some would say you wouldn't couldn't see from the outside necessarily unless you knew. Um, and I've been told off in the past for saying that sometimes that work can seem invisible. Um, and I think the right word to use is integrated. Um, and I, I, I've had a lot of discussions about that. But um, yeah, movement direction can be quite hard to understand from the outside because there may be there's been many plays that I've worked on where there isn't any dance and any stylized movement and the only work that I have um done has been potentially this kind of integrated like unseeable work um it's unlike a lighting designer where you can see the lighting or a sound designer where you can see that hear the sound you know there's sometimes the work of a movement director can be hugely integral to an actor's performance but you can't necessarily uh, pinpoint exactly where it is as an audience member so um yeah it's a it's a it's a title that i think people are still grappling with one of the things that um i find mind-blowingly impressive about your work is your uh, ability to work with actors who aren't dancers and essentially make them into dancers make them look uh 
brilliant and professional and well all round like marvelous movers how do you do um, that? uh <laughs> i well i i approach I'm thinking in particular of the two musicals uh uh the process of uh, making I observed closely, uh, which are uh, Fiddler on the Roof and uh, Pinger Wagon, which you did uh, both with Gemma Bodnay. Obviously, both those companies were uh, made up of people who were primarily actors, not necessarily singers, and certainly not dancers. Um, yeah, and I just obviously the results that uh, emerged from those rehearsal rooms and the uh, choreographic work that you did was excellent and uh, would stand up to. Um, I would think some professional dance work. So tell me how you go about taking those people who perhaps don't define themselves as dancers, find the process a little intimidating and end up with the results that you do. Oh yeah, of course. Well, um, I try and approach uh, every piece of choreography as storytelling as a, as a kind of starting point. Um, and obviously that means that uh, my language can change with who I'm working with. But I, I am a firm believer that we can all tell stories with our bodies and um, with the right. Obviously, that can sometimes take a lot of work um, for an individual. And I've been very lucky that I've worked with many actors who desperately invest and work their bums off to make um, to kind of grapple with movement. But um, for me, I will always try and approach it with an attitude of uh nothing is right or wrong um let's see where we can get you know to that point of like we'll see how far we can push ourselves and i will always adamantly enjoy pushing people to their limits um in a positive safe way so that they can feel the challenge um but you know if i think i always approach movement as a piece of storytelling so my language when i'm working with actors who may not have danced before will all be about um, it will be probably using a lot of metaphor and using a lot of visual ideas, you know, that um, from an acting um, headspace more than a dance headspace. Um, it still might be that they're doing the same moves that I'd give a dancer, but I would just maybe think about my language changing slightly to to try and get the most out of them and the, the best understanding from them. Um, and, you know, those those projects, especially Fiddler on the Roof, Paint Your Wagon with the Everyman Company, were hugely uh, huge investments from the creative team and the actors. Um, you know, I know for a fact that uh, some of those actors would rehearse every night when they got home for another hour to try and make sure that they could grapple with some of that movement language. But there was, I think they felt safe that if they couldn't get there, we wouldn't do that and I would do something else you know and there were moments when I pushed them too hard and they were like I don't think we can do this with the time that we've got and I go okay cool let's find another solution um it's all about that communication and making sure that you know I think as a creative how your performers are doing and um how much energy they've got left to give you um it's that fine balance between pushing someone to challenge them but also understanding their limits that's uh, super interesting and thank you for being so articulate about the process of making that work um i just have a couple of quick questions for you before we finish off if that's all right yeah of course. can you tell us about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind yeah i can oh um so i was really lucky before lockdown in january i got to go to new york for a week um which is my one of my favorite places um and i saw four or five pieces of what you might call theatre, um, all very different during that time. 
but I saw a piece of theatre that I've seen now five times and I I have to keep coming back to it because um, my talking about blowing blowing my mind my reaction to this piece is so visceral emotive and physical that I just can't ever talk about anything else and that is Punch Drunk's uh, Sleep No More Um, it's been on in New York for about eight years Um, it's been on for a while Um, and yeah as I said before I've seen it five times and there's something for me about that combination of art as using movement, storytelling, character, narrative, exploration, physical intimacy. Uh, It's just the most kind of, for me, as you say, mind-blowing experience. Um, And it's something that I I just can't can't seem to ever get out of my head. It really has stuck with me for many years. so uh, yeah, Punch Drunk Sleep No More. And if you don't know anything about Punch Drunk, have a little look up at what they do. They make um, a kind of really extreme immersive work. And Sleep No More is uh, a, f- a telling of Macbeth, but with kind of a fil- film noir stance and a film noir lens. So it kind of uh, uses a lot of uh, Bernard Herrmann soundtrack and uh, uh, kind of uh, that kind of, Hitchcock aesthetic to tell the story of Macbeth in a five-story hotel and you have freedom to go wherever you would like and follow whatever characters you want to follow it's kind of like an adult's playground really yes and I would imagine when all this is over people will be flocking to such work like never before Um, because it is such uh, as you describe it an all-encompassing experience um, it's very different to the normal experience of sitting down watching a play and it couldn't be further removed from the experience that uh, we're all enjoying so much of at the moment which is sitting at home and enjoying stuff on our television just before we finish off Tom can you recommend something for all enjoy while we're social so I've got a f- just physically I, I've been really struggling as many of us have so just on a side note um, the down dog yoga app is fantastic so if anyone's struggling there's so many classes online but um if it's something you want to control yourself the down dog yoga app is brilliant but from a kind of uh netflix point of view i've downloaded disney plus and i've been really enjoying going back from the very beginning and watching the early disney shorts but um i've just started watching ozark which is on netflix um which is kind of a suspense drama um which I won't say too much about, but I would recommend wholeheartedly because every episode feels like an epic marathon of a movie and I love it. Oh, it does. I mean, yes, they, it, Ozark is is not a show that's event shy, that's for sure. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot going on in every hour. Um, but uh, I'm going to uh, take you up on the tip of the Down Dog app. Uh, since working from home, I've been doing this for what, a month now, my back killing me and I'm doing my best to exercise. You know, I'm out most days running. I'm doing, doing my best to sort of pull my carcass around to stop the waste expanding but my god my back I'm in agony no the down dog app is brilliant because you can choose how long you do the level of uh kind of how experienced you are um and it can focus on specific body parts and it's free until the beginning of May so get it now (laughs) excellent Tom Jackson Greaves thank you so much for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you oh thank you take care 
Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghamplayhouse.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released.